I think that it is uh, Tim Kesey, although it could be Nick Ripkin. Uh, in either case, it's either Tim Kesey or Nick Ripkin. That speaking of the church in persecuted countries, they talk about how those believers will speak of, uh, of seminary, going to seminary. One young pastor, I remember a particular story, I believe he was probably very early 20s, had uh, said that he had been invited to speak to a gathering uh, of church leaders or speak at a gathering that he had been invited to. Uh, and he was a bit reticent to do so because of his youth, but he knew the reason that he had been invited to say something is because he had recently been to seminary. Seminary, of course, is um, it's not a school. It's not a college in this context. Uh, seminary in these places is being imprisoned for the name of Christ. This young pastor had been to seminary, and so he had been invited to speak. He had... Uh, he had attended some classes at the University of Sacrificial Suffering. And so he now knew some things about God. He knew his Lord in a new way. Once a believer has been to seminary, they're changed. They know the Lord in new ways. Our passage this morning in the book of Exodus moves to really a new stage in the life of the nation of Israel. This passage is doing several things, not the least of which is showing Yahweh at work now training his people. Up to this point, he's been preparing them for and accomplishing the deliverance, the delivering of his people. But now begins a short session of wilderness wandering. There will be a far longer session of wilderness wandering that will happen on the other side of Mount Sinai. But there is a short season of wandering before Sinai, and that is a season of training. He is still doing what he has been doing all throughout the book of Exodus and in this season of their lives. Yahweh is making him his name known. Yahweh is making himself known. He has just shown himself as the Redeemer, not just the Creator. The, his people knew him as Creator in Genesis they knew him as the promise maker. They knew him as the caller. But now they know him as redeemer and as deliverer. See the, the progressive revelation of scripture? But there is still yet, even now, so much more. He makes himself known through trials is what he's going to do. He's going to make his name known through the trials that he will purpose for them. What we see in our passage this morning is really a three-act movement that is uh, a paradigm of how the Lord works throughout Scripture, constantly working to sanctify his people, to grow them. That three-act movement, testing and then grumbling, not always, hopefully not, but in my experience, almost always, grumbling and then grace and glory. That's the three-act movement in our passage today, and it's a biblical paradigm. You'll find it all over the place in Scripture. For each of these three acts this morning, there is a truth to encourage us in our walk with God, a truth this morning that I want to 
highlight for you, to encourage you. Brothers and sisters, you are going through trials. Brothers and sisters, you are being tested. And the Lord is training you. And if you and I can better identify from God's perspective a bit more of what he is doing, then you are that much more equipped to go through those successfully. So this morning, um, I'm going to say lots of stuff, and you may be want to write down a lot of words, but I'm going to make it super simple for you. Let me give you one main point for each act in this movement of training. And if you get that, I pray that that's what you'll chew on this week if you forget everything else. Everything else is just meant to feed into those. The first act is that of testing. And then I'll give you right up front the truth that this passage reveals that this paradigm reveals in this act of testing that you and I need to hang on to, and it's this. You can just jot it down right now for this first movement or this first act. Yahweh knows how to deliver his people. Yahweh knows how to deliver his people. First, I want you to notice where we are in the story. Our brother Brian did a great job last week in Exodus 15, 1 through 21 in walking us through the praise that the nation sang as they stood there with the waters of the of the Red Sea now you know washing back over dead bodies washing up on the shore and the the waves lapping at their feet and they sang they sang of their great God and their great deliverance they had seen 10 plagues and a pillar of fire cloud by day and by night, going before them and then, when necessary, coming behind them to guard and protect and keep them. And they rejoiced. Yahweh has just delivered them. It is the, the greatest deliverance in all of history. I, I would challenge you to find a greater deliverance of any kind anywhere in the world in any time than what God does with the nation of Israel bringing them out of Egypt. And here they are now. They're a saved people. Now, when I say that, that doesn't mean that necessarily every single individual is truly believing in a way that their sins are covered and they will spend eternity with God, that they're going to go to heaven. Not necessarily. But as a corporate entity, they are delivered. They are redeemed. They are by faith to appropriate spiritually what has just occurred for them physically. And say, wow, this bringing us out of slavery and bondage now to freedom. Now to, to serve the one true God rather than to serve Pharaoh. This is what I need every day of my life, right? Even though I'm no longer under that taskmaster Pharaoh anymore. What we notice is where they are in this story is that they've just been redeemed their eyes have seen, even, new things about God as he has revealed himself as deliverer and redeemer. And they've worshipped, they've sung, and they've, they've rejoiced. And yet, what happens now? It is the first of what will be several episodes of grumbling. Just a few, by the way, just before they get to Mount Sinai. And then afterwards, a whole bunch of them. If you know anything about Israel and the wilderness, you know the word grumbling. And this being the first of several episodes of grumbling, it's also several rounds of Yahweh testing them. 
He is not testing them for the sake of salvation, not testing them to see if they're good enough to be his people. No, what he's doing, he is testing them to train them. He's testing them to instruct them. He's testing them to expose them, to make them right to hear so that he can teach them. Why? Not for salvation, but for sanctification. So here they go, right from joyful singing and from the victory mount to the place of hardship. Right after deliverance and a great victory comes a test. After this mighty work of worship, the testing comes quickly. Look at uh, verse 22. There's an interesting little phrase there. Uh, it says, then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea. Who is it that is leading the nation? Well, you'll know from back at the end of chapter 13 that Yahweh has now already given the pillar of fire cloud. I like to call it that because uh, it seems that probably during the day when it was sunny outside, it just looked like a cloud. And at night when it was dark, it shone up in the sky and looked like fire. It could be that it changed like, you know, from, from smoke to fire, you know, like right at dusk. I don't know. But I'm more inclined to think it's the fire cloud pillar. Regardless, it's a supernatural manifestation of God's presence. And it goes before them. It leads them every step of the way. So isn't this an interesting little statement? Moses led Israel from the Red Sea. In fact, the, the word that's there, it's actually not the word, it's the, it's the verb tense that's there. Uh, Moses caused Israel to be led. I, I, I think the motif there, the, the sense of it is they were real happy right there on the shore. Hey, man, let's like, uh, let's build some campfires and let's just sing and this is awesome this is a total kumbaya fest and Moses is like um hey guys look up um the, the pillar's going hey guys the pillar is let's go guys come on people gather your stuff it's time to move Moses couldn't have led in front of the pillar cloud and so the pillar cloud is going the fire cloud is going and so he is then compelling them to follow what's the point of that detailed uh, incursion into the text. It's, it's that there is a sense there that the people are real happy on the Mount of Victory to stand there rejoicing in the deliverance, but God intends a test. And so he moves quickly in that direction. Brothers and sisters, let us not think that testing should come upon us as a surprise because it is one of the best means by which God grows us is through our trials. We know also that God in his leading knows how to spare and protect his people. We know back um, at the beginning of chapter 15, no, I'm sorry, there in 1317, you can flip back there, it said, uh, when Pharaoh let the people go, that God didn't lead them by the way of the Philistines, the easy way, the one they would expect. He led them a different way because he knew if they went that way, the obstacles would be too much and they couldn't handle it. So instead, he, he led them by a direction that had no obstacles whatsoever, right? So don't think when you face trials, when I face testing, that it's like, well, this must be a mistake. No, trust me, God knows exactly what he is doing, and he could have led you by any number of different paths, and he, for his own infinite wisdom, knows exactly why he didn't lead you by those paths and why he is leading you 
down this one. The Lord knows how to spare his people. He knows how to protect his people. And he does that. He does it with Israel in one direction. And then he turns and leads them right into a trial in another direction. So what do we find here in this testing? Again, 22, they went out into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness. They found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the waters of Marah. Marah, by the way, means bitter. They could not drink the waters of Marah, for they were bitter. Therefore, it was named bitter. Oh, okay, well, that makes sense. What is Yahweh doing in his leading? He's leading them directly to a place where they will thirst. You imagine a couple million people and three days without water, that would be rough. Sure, they had some stores with them on the way, but if not completely depleted, they are probably beginning to ration them at the very least. And then for a moment, just for a moment, there is a sense of hope as they look ahead and they see this oasis of water. But then they get to Mara and they find they can't even drink it. So now, disappointments. What we see God doing at this place is leading them directly into their distress, not out of it. Our distress in trials is very real. Is it, is it a small thing that a couple million people and they don't have water for a few days? No, that's real. And, and so are your trials. They're absolutely real. Oh, you may have some that are imagined. That's a different sermon from a different passage for a different day. But you have other trials that are real. Some of them may be of your making, but many may not. But God who leads purposes at times to lead us directly to the place of our thirst of our lack of our want, and then even to lead us to a place where it looks like there is provision only to find that it's bitter. This is God in his infinite wisdom. And brothers and sisters, if you're in one of those seasons now or when you find yourself in one of those seasons, you come back to a passage like this and you just get on your knees, you put up your hand, you go, we know what, Lord God, thank you that you get that the distress is real. And, and, and thank you, Lord, that you have led me here to thirst. So here I am, thirsting. Thank you that you have purposed a test in your goodwill. Let me um, just highlight the nature of this test by, by reminding you. Let's, let's consider what these Israelites have just seen and what they already know. From the song that they just sung at the first half of chapter 15, here are some of the phrases that they say. Verse 5, Yahweh, you are majestic in power. Verse 7, they speak of the greatness of his excellence. Verse 11, they speak of how he's incomparable. Who is like you, O Yahweh? They say that he's majestic in holiness and that he works wonders. In verse 13, they actually say, you lead us in covenant love. And you are guiding us in strength. Verse 2 of chapter 15, the song begins with the Israelites saying, You, O Lord, are my strength and my song and my salvation, and you are my God. I will praise you. I will extol you. And then the song ends in verses 16 through 18. And they say there, You will surely 
bring us into the land and you will plant us and you will give us an inheritance. Look at the certainty and the praise. How long does that last? About 72 hours. It's not as though these are people who don't know, who haven't seen the goodness of God, even in miraculous ways. And yet God has led them here into this distress. You see, because of the place of where it is, because of the context, what should the people be doing at this moment? They should be recalling to mind the very words that they've said, and they should, they should be encouraging one another. Brother, remember that song we sang a couple days ago on the shore? Yahweh knows how to deliver his people. Yeah, but where are we going to get water? I don't know. You don't know. Well, we don't need to know. How did we get here? That big fire cloud thing. We're, we're following him. He's, do you think he doesn't know? He knows how to deliver his people, right? Imagine how it could be different. Now, what's your experience? And what's my experience? How, how long does it take after we experience the victory and the joy and the celebration until we find ourselves in that place going, God, what are you doing? This is ridiculous. This doesn't make any sense. I'm pretty sure you messed up. In fact, I have some advice for you. Whatever. He goes, look, this is a test because I love you. This is my discipline for the, for the purpose of your training because I'm committed to you, because I will grow you because you are going to learn of me and see me in ways that you couldn't any other way. Yahweh knows how to deliver his people. The second act then that comes on the heel of this is grumbling. And the truth that this passage reveals to us and the general paradigm reveals is that Yahweh knows that his purposes are for good. Not only does Yahweh know how to deliver his people, but Yahweh knows that his purposes are for good. 23, when they came to Marah, they could not drink the waters of Marah, for they were bitter, therefore it was named Marah. So the people grumbled at Moses, saying, what shall we drink? You know, it would be easy in reading this passage to say, <laughs> you know, I hate to admit it, but I kind of empathize with the Israelites at this point. I mean, there's a couple million of them, and I'm sure they got some little people in their midst, and they have animals that they need to water. I mean, what would you do? I don't know, but I know what they were supposed to do. I know what they had just seen. By the way, there is a, uh, it's a subtle, but it's a profound contrast that you can't miss. Um, take a look again at verse 22. How long was it? After they left Egypt, when they grumbled, you know the answer, right? Three days. Anybody, does that strike anything for you in the book of Exodus? Don't go resurrection. I know you're good New Testament people, but let's just keep it in Exodus. Three days, do anything for your thinking? Remember in Exodus chapter 5, when God first called Moses and Moses first went to Pharaoh and he says, God says, let my people go. They will travel three days into the wilderness and what? Worship me. That's what he said. In fact, he says it several times. 
That was the, the whole thing. They were supposed to go three days and worship. So here they are at the edge of Egypt, worshiping, and then they travel three days. And what do they do? What a contrast, right? From what they were supposed to do, what they had been hoping to do. We're so sick of serving Pharaoh, being a slave to Pharaoh, worshiping Pharaoh. That word group is one word in the Hebrew, serve, slave, worship. We want to serve Yahweh, be a slave of Yahweh, have his, him as our master. We want to worship Yahweh. Great, three days into the wilderness, then boom, it'll be big. Here they are, exactly at that moment in time. Things don't always work out the way we expect they will, do they? And sometimes that can be some of our biggest testing, our expectations. We anticipate one thing, but it's very different. I wonder if at this point the nation largely thinks, Whew. and the last 400 years have been rough, but at least that's over. I mean, it's going to be easy now. We know this will be a common refrain for them. We could turn to Psalm 95 and Psalm 106, where the later New Testament writers reflecting back on this generation, they'll, they'll augment for us, they'll, they'll show us what this idea of grumbling is. It's, it's not just that, ah, eh, they complained a little bit. It was a rebellion. It was a forgetting. That's what Psalm 106 says. In fact, uh, I think it's 106. Yeah, 106, you can write down verses 11 through 13. Verse 11 says, they saw the dead bodies on the shore, and then the very not next phrase is, but they did not remember my ways. That's this grumbling. It's a rejection of what God has said and choose to turn their eyes somewhere else. You know, the thing is for Israel, and I imagine for us, if we were to imagine being in that situation, we think, yeah, I can empathize with their struggles. And I might do the same thing. Sure, I might. In fact, I know I might because I do. But consider what they, again, should have done. Did he not have power over nature? Do you think maybe they knew that? Did he not have control over land and sea and sky, over water, over disease, over animals, over life, and over death? Has he just not demonstrated that in spades? And then here, they're every day watching the supernatural leading of the fiery cloud that brings them to this place. And so, as is often the case with us, so it was with Israel, there is testing and then there is grumbling. Now, the question then is, what is Yahweh doing with all of this? And as I've already intimated for you, he's training. He's led them here on purpose. He gave them a dire situation on purpose so that he could train them. Because this is what he always does. He always trains his children. This is a biblical paradigm. Let me read you a couple of passages. I'd love to have you turn there with me. If you don't want to, then at least jot them down. But hold your place in Exodus 15. Go to the right just a bit to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 8. May I read this to you? I want you to see the pattern there. Because it's referring back to this very generation and to this very time. It's right at the end of the children's generation, these children who are there at Exodus 15 are going to grow up. And if they were young enough that they didn't die in the wilderness, 
right as they are about to enter into the promised land. Here's Moses' words to them explaining all that God is doing and what they should do. Deuteronomy 8, verses 2 and 3. You shall remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years, that he might humble you. What does God do? He leads us places to humble us. That he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. He humbled you and he let you be hungry and he fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, so that, here's the purpose statement, so that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. What we should see in that is that over 40 years, he purposely led them to a place of testing of need and want and distress so that he could humble them and so that he could train them. So that what? So that he would make them know that he is the Lord. You don't live by food. You don't need water. Understand the context here, right? But what we really need is every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. What we really need is to know him. That's what we need more than our necessary food. Yahweh says, I want a people who know me like that because I'm revealing myself to them and then through them to all the world. Friends, what is God doing in your distress? I don't know what your trial is or what your next one will be, but I, knew, I know that he is making himself known to you and to me. And so I, I cling to that. Yahweh knows that his purposes are good. And so we see several ways that it's good there in Deuteronomy 8. Ah, but that's just the Old Testament. Fine. Hebrews 12, you can turn there with me if you want, or you can just jot it down. Hebrews 12, and we could find tons of other passages where we see both the testing and then the good that comes from it. But Deuteronomy 12 might be one of the clearest and one of the best of all. I'm sorry, Hebrews 12, Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12, picking up in verse 4. To a people in the midst of their trials, the Spirit says, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin, and you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, so that we may share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been, what? Trained by it. Afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Yahweh knows that his purposes are for good. And so in, in this era, under this covenant, we're told by the author of Hebrews that his trials, his discipline is for our testing. Why? So he's training us. And what are just a, a few of the outcomes of that? Well, it says that it's for our good in verse 10. It, so, it says so that we may share in his holiness... It says that 
that we will be trained by it and then we will bear more fruit, a peaceful fruit, a righteous fruit. Do you want to share more in who God is? Then know that this testing is for his purpose and that his purposes are always for good. We could look at other places where the same paradigm is found, but you, you know it and you get it. First in the training, first there's testing, and then second there's grumbling. Now, would it be to God that you and I could skip that step? By the way, did you notice? Back to Exodus 15, there's one dude that did. Moses, right? What did the people do? They grumbled. Where did they grumble? To Moses. What did Moses do? There it is in verse 25. And then he, that's Moses, cried out to the Lord. Okay, good. He turned to God. I wonder how that worked. Oh, I guess I don't have to wonder very long because the very next words say, and the Lord showed him a tree. <laughs> uh, how the Lord loves to use trees to bring life and to heal, right? Remember Genesis 2, 9? The tree of life that you could eat from and live forever. Remember Revelation 22, that in the new Jerusalem, in the new heavens, in the new earth, there will be a new tree of life. Oh, and by the way, it says that its fruits would be for the healing of the nation. It's another tree that heals, just like this one does. All of that points theologically to another tree that heals. You know, the one that was bitterest of all, the most cursed of all trees, the one on which our Savior hung and suffered and died, and yet it has become for us the tree of our healing. Colossians 2 says that all of our, all the decree against us Every, every record written to prove every sin that Frank has ever done is nailed to that tree. And it is dealt with so that now there's healing. We praise God for that. How the Lord loves to use trees. So here he, he shows Moses a tree, a wood, and he tosses it in. Some of the commentators wrestle over whether or not this was just a natural means that was amplified supernaturally or whether it was a purely supernatural means. At the end of the day, I don't care because it was supernatural in its scope, if not uh, also as well by its very dynamic. It was supernatural to make it. And it turned that bitter water to sweet. We'll come back to that. But how did all that come about? Because one man, one guy, decided not to complain. <laughs> what difference would it make in my life, in your life? What difference for your marriage, for your family, for your workplace, if your response was rather than grumbling to say, oh, Lord, God, help. Did, did God chastise Moses for crying out? What did he cry out? I don't know. Text doesn't tell us, but my guess would be cry out, and the context can fill in just about all those words for you. What are we going to do? Lord, you've led us here. Help. All I know is it was a cry of faith. 
There was a cry that was answered. You don't have to lie to God about your distress. You don't have to pretend, okay, this is tough, but I'm going to keep a stiff upper lip. I'm not going to cry. I'm not going to cry. I'm not going to cry. I could do this. No. Where do you see that in the Psalms? Oh, Lord God, we are led like sheep before the slaughter every day. When, oh, Lord? How long, oh, Lord? Brother, sister, when the time comes, be Moses. What a difference that's going to make. Testing, grumbling, and then finally in this paradigm is grace and glory. I, I wanted to title this message today, God's Grace to Grumblers, because <laughs> I think that's what the passage is, but uh, the training motif is where I landed, but uh, you can write that down if you want. God's Grace to, glumber, grum, to Glumbers to grumblers the third act is grace and glory and the truth that this passage reveals and that this paradigm reveals for you and me to hang on to is that you will know Yahweh more for yourself grace and glory is what comes after testing and grumbling for those who are his children because he will bring to completion his good work in you and he is sanctifying and he does know his purposes are good. And he has led you to the trial. So at the end of it, you will know Yahweh more for yourself. Grace and glory. There are so many pieces of this. I want to just quickly run through them for you. First, there is the, the, uh, the bitter made sweet. 25, Moses cried out to the Lord. The Lord showed him a tree, threw it into the water, and the waters became sweet. I wonder what that water tasted like. You know, uh, people have talked about uh, Jesus' first miracle. You remember the first miracle at the wedding in Cana of Galilee, right, turning the water into wine? And do you remember, like, the professional, like, head waiter dude? He comes and he tastes the wine. He goes, dude, that is wine. Like, I've had wine, but that is wine. I wonder what this water is like. In fact, isn't it hilarious isn't it hilarious that this place named Mara, by the way, we don't know if it was named that, if it was named that by the people before because this water was well known for being brackish and briny and poisonous. So it had always been known as, as Mara, maybe, or if it was just that the Israelites gave it that name. We knew that it becomes known by that name from this point forward for the Israelites. But isn't that name ironic? Because I, Imagine what it's like about a week later, hanging out with, you know, the Reubenites. You guys are having a little meal. Hey, man, do you remember Mara? Oh, dude, that was some good water, right? It's probably the best water they've ever tasted in their whole life. Because it was meant to be a taste of salvation. It was meant to be a taste of God's healing and holiness and goodness that after he brings us through and then in his good time and his sovereign will answers. We come back and we go, oh Lord, why did I ever do it any other way but your way? Because <laughs> yours is always the sweetest. Grace and glory. There are renewed affections and transformed affections. That's the second grace and glory. Here I would just say it's just hinted at. It's, uh, it, it's just um, 
uh, it's, it's inductive from the passage. But here it says, uh, end of 25, he made a statute and a regulation there. He tested them and he said, if you will give earnest heed to the voice of the Lord your God, you do what is right in his sight, you give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, then I will keep you from this judgment. The point is to do all of those things would be the fruit of a new heart, to say, Lord God, no matter what, I want to hear and I want to do. By the way, if you look closely at those four phrases, you'll find two verbs of hearing and two verbs of doing. And in the Hebrew understanding, in the verb of hearing, hearing is doing. They always go together. If you hear the word of the Lord, to hear it rightly means to do it. That's how you know you've heard it. If it washes over you and you walk away like a person who looked at their face in a mirror and then forgets what they look like, then you haven't heard it. That's a Hebrew Hebraic paradigm. This is a transformed affection. Lord, I desire to do your will. Lord, help me hear your will. Lord, help me do your will. And so he gives them this, this mini law. This is a mini pre-Sinai law. It's a tiny little taste of what will be all of the Mosaic law code. But here it is before Sinai, a tiny little one. It's a good law made for their good to help them test their affections and grow their affections by it. Third, there's growth of character, or at least that's the purpose. Again, it's only inductive here in Exodus 15, but we saw that in Deuteronomy 8, humility, and so that you would give me thanks, and so that you would know me, and so that you would know that physical sustenance is barely but a picture to my supernatural spiritual sustenance. And in Hebrews 12, right, we already enumerated several of those, righteousness and, and share in his God-likeness and peace and fruit and so many other things. Growth of character, that's part of the grace and glory, part of the knowing Yahweh more for yourself. And then the one that is clearest in this passage, there's new revelation from God here. There is actually new revelation from God here. Uh, end of 26, and giving their ear to his commandments, keep all his statutes. If you do all those things, he says, I will put none of the diseases on you, which I have put on the Egyptians, for I, the Lord, am your healer. By the way, what diseases is he talking about? As I read through this, because I'm a 21st century American, it was obvious to me he's talking about the plagues. And then I came across a commentator that said he might not be talking about the plagues. He might be talking about just the well-known, notorious diseases of Egypt. And I think I mentioned this once before. Apparently, the Egyptians were just known for being dirty, diseased people. And I go, okay, well, that sounds like a stretch, you ridiculous commentator. Uh, until the commentator pointed to, do I have it written down? I don't. I think it's Deuteronomy 7. I can find the verse for you if you care. There are at least two places in Scripture where it mentions the diseases of the Egyptians, and it's clear in the context. It's not talking about the plagues that God brought. And by the way, secondly, diseases is a weird word for the plagues, right? I mean, fire and hail from the sky is kind of not a disease, right? Um, you know, the blood, Nile turned to blood is kind of not a disease. Probably caused a lot of diseases. Could be either one, and at the end of the day, I don't know too much, and it's not going to change our interpretation, but it is an interesting thing. However, the Israelites were to think of their time in Egypt, and by the way, they're very shortly going to go, man, we loved our time in Egypt. I wish we, should go, we could go back there. I've never said that. Never longed for the old days of sin and its passing, fleeting, lying, deceptive joys. Have you? The Israelites will, and we do. But he says, look, let me just give you a, a banner to hang over that. It's diseased, it's corrupt, it's decrepit. And he says, look, I'm not going to let you experience that if you'll walk 
with me? And why? He says, because I am the Lord, I am your healer. Jehovah Rapha, if you've ever heard that phrase, the Lord your hero, healer, here's where it starts right here, Exodus 15. And if we even had the time to touch on it, that is a huge theme throughout Scripture. In fact, the word for healer is much more than just a physical taking away of physical disease. It has the idea, the word for healing has the idea of wholeness. It's, it's the bringing of shalom. It's the renewing us to the place of when in Eden they had the perfect relationship with God and they could be naked and unashamed and they had nothing to hide before him or before another person. Oh my goodness, that's healing. And he says, I am the Lord, your healer. What's going to be your encouragement this week for the testing that you go through, for the trials that you're going through today? What's going to be my hope? I'm going to go, Lord God, I'm, I'm going to know you more. And I'm going to know you for myself. Not just something I heard, not something somebody else has said. I'm going to have my own testimony. Let me tell you how God is making me whole, I will say. You will say, let me, let me tell you how God is healing my bones. <laughs> because... That's what he does at the end, grace and glory. And then lastly, the passage ends with a, a perfect closure of their need. Verse 27, his total provision. Then they came to Elim, where there were 12 springs of water and 70 date palms, and they camped there besides the waters. 12 springs, 12 rivers that all of the tribes, in fact, 12. Hmm. How many tribes in Israel? What a coincidence. That worked out well. They all have their own stream to camp by. 70 date palms. I actually wrote down in my initial passes through this passage, 70 trees sounds like a lot, but you're talking maybe a couple million people. It doesn't sound like that much. It's possible that 70 is symbolic. I don't know. Maybe it's exactly 70. Maybe not everybody got a date. I don't know. All I know is the picture is abundantly clear. Where did the passage start? Three days into the wilderness, no water. Oh, but then they find water, but oh, huge disappointment. Where does the passage end? We got copious water. In fact, this water is deep underground, and it's feeding these huge trees. We have shade. This is a giant oasis to provide for all of our people because that's what God does. That's what God does in his testing Brothers and sisters, that's his training. And I say this not to plead with your heart any more than I would to plead with mine. Know that ahead of time. Because that is what will bear you through such trials. You will know Yahweh more for yourself. And he will give his provision, either in this life or take you home and bring it perfectly there. But he will provide. So this week, you will be tested. Frank, you're such a prophet. <laughs> That's hilarious. This week, you'll probably grumble. I think without being a prophet, I can say I'll grumble. But I have now a great response to my grumbling. Oh, yeah, I think I'm right in the middle of this thing that God does, not to save me, but to sanctify me. And his purposes are always for good. And he 
is going to bring me more to know him and to know for myself. What a great encouragement and what a good God that he trains. Stand with me and let's close in prayer. Gracious God, our Father, we thank you. We thank you, Lord, that you are testing us. That word from a worldly perspective to say what your God tests you, I don't want to have anything to do with it. Oh, Lord, once you open our eyes, it changes our understanding of everything. Lord God, we are grateful that you lead us into your training. When the time comes this week, Lord God, let us be like Moses. Cry out to you. Let us know, Lord, that you have not left us unled, but, le- but rather you are leading. Help us this week because um, we're going to grumble. And yet look at your grace to grumblers. They still got to know you. You still revealed themselves to you, even though they all grumbled. And Lord God, you're just that good. Would you reveal yourself to us this week, even through and in spite of our grumbling? And if it be your will and your help, without us having to grumble. And when we know and we see you more, may the world see you in our lives in a way so that they would know that you are Lord, be drawn to you. Lord, this is what we ask all for your glory in Christ's name. Amen.